Our best days as a country are ahead of us. Those words were tweeted by a UK politician on the 3rd of August last year. Now, it's the sort of thing we'd love to believe, isn't it? Wouldn't it be great to be confident that there are good times, the best of times, ahead of us? Now, the tweeter, if you're wondering, uh, was one Liz Truss. Uh, Remember her? Well, a few months down the track, we might well find it hard to take her word for it. Are our best days as a country really ahead of us? Well, maybe. Maybe not. Forget the future of the United Kingdom. What about the future of God's kingdom? Are the best days of God's kingdom ahead of us or behind us? Living as a Christian in the UK at the moment, it's very hard to believe that the best is yet to come for God's people. Perhaps we wish we could roll the clock back a few years or decades to a time when the church was more respected or more successful or or just not under constant attack from every angle. Now, it's likely that feelings a little bit like that were shared by the first readers of the book of Samuel. Israelites living in exile, having been defeated and humiliated by their enemies. They were enslaved and dispersed across the ancient world. With no king on the throne of Israel, their situation seemed pretty hopeless. And reading about the great King David and his glorious kingdom, it must have seemed like uh, the golden age for God's people was well and truly in the past. Whether the exiled Israelite or the modern Western Christian, the final act in the story of King David is here to bring hope. Hope that the best days for God's people aren't behind us, but really do lie ahead of us. Where does that hope come from? Let's start by taking a look at David's mighty men. David's mighty men in those, that first and last chunk, starting in uh, 2 Samuel 21 and verse 15. Now, the start of this passage sounds like business as usual for the book of Samuel. Verse 15, there was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. Well, we've seen that happen before, haven't we? This time, there's a sting in the tail. And David grew weary. This is no longer the the fresh-faced lad of one Samuel. Now David's old. And he's tired. He's perfectly willing to go to battle against the Philistines. But his body is full of aches and pains and scars. And we're given proof of just how bad things have got when Ishbi Benob steps into the ring. And doesn't he sound intimidating? One of the descendants of the giants whose spear weighed 300 shekels or or three and a half kilograms in today's money. Three and a half kilograms of bronze armed with a new sword. This terrifying monster only has one thought in his mind, to kill the king. Now it sounds like Goliath all over again, doesn't it? But as intimidating as Ishbi Benob sounds, he's only half the giant Goliath ever was. Goliath, we're told, had a spear topped with 600 shekels, at seven kilograms in today's money, and not of bronze, 
of iron. Goliath is twice the giant Ishbi Benob is. But whereas David was able to take down the super heavyweight Goliath single-handedly, now he needs one of his men to come to the rescue against this featherweight Philistine. In verse 17, that's what happens. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. And David's men, well, they can see the writing on the wall. From now on, David will stay safe at home while others fight their battles for him. It's the end of an era. David's best days seem to be well and truly behind him. And the temptation is to mourn for this great king, to long for the the glory days of his reign. But the writer of 2 Samuel wants David's demise to bring us hope. The rest of uh, chapter 21 and the the first uh, few verses of chapter 23 uh, make incredible reading. There are giant slayings and showdowns of epic proportions time and time again. David and his mighty men are made to sound like the Avengers. But remember, throughout 1 and 2 Samuel, we've been taught not to be too impressed with human might and power. And that's what we're being taught again here. Now flick over a couple of pages uh, to chapter 23, uh, verse 8. We're told here of David's three most powerful warriors, Joheb Bashabeth, Eleazar, the son of Dodo, and Shammah, the son of Agi. The big three, we might call them. Imagine them on building-length posters flowing throughout Jerusalem. But as mighty as they were, they aren't really the heroes of this story. And neither is David, because the true hero, as always, is the Lord. It's a message that's repeated for us so we don't miss it. Look down at verse 10. One of the big three has taken down a whole army of Philistines. But before we get too impressed with him, we're told the Lord brought about a great victory that day. Then verse 12, Shammah, he's defended his lentil patch from a load of Philistines. But put your theological x-ray specs on and you'll see that it was the Lord who worked a great victory that day. David's race may be run. His golden age of mighty men may be in the past. But God's people needn't lose hope. Why? Because the Lord is the real hero. He's the one who brings about victory for his people, not mortal kings or even mighty men. It's not human strength that will win the day. It's the Lord who gives the victory. And so God's people are to trust him and him alone always. It's a message we need to bear in mind, particularly when we think about the church. And I don't just mean the church in general out there. I mean this church in particular We are in a time at the moment, aren't we, when the immediate future of our church is, well, a bit unclear. Our senior minister is retiring, and we don't know who's going to come next. And the temptation can be to worry. 
what if we make the wrong choice as a church? What if the, the man who's appointed isn't our personal cup of tea? What if it takes forever to find the right person and we just drift along as a church in the meantime? What if, worst of all, someone comes in and makes changes? If we're tempted to think like that, we need to remember what 1 and 2 Samuel have taught us time and time again. Maybe you were thrown by the announcement of John's retirement, but God wasn't. When you find yourself worrying about the future of, of our church, of this church, we need to remember that Jesus really is in control and it is, after all, his church. And so rather than worry about our best days being behind us, we need to pray to God for his help for the future, that he would cause this church to, to flourish no matter who our senior minister is. Don't be afraid. Don't lose hope. Trust in the Lord. He's the one who will bring about victory for his church, not any human leader. And that hope is repeated on the lips of David himself as he sings a song of worship to his almighty God in chapter 22. Just before he died, in AD 14, the first Roman emperor, Augustus, wrote a summary of his reign, and he ordered it to be carved on stone throughout the empire. It looked a little something like this. Now, the title translates as The Achievements of the Divine Augustus. It's not a short read, and it's not very humble either. It does what it says on the tin. It reads a bit like this. I did this, then I did that, and I did the other as well. It's a list of military victories achieved and vast numbers of enemies conquered, records of generous donations made, political offices held, and buildings built. And over and over and over again, throughout the known world, on big writing in public places, Augustus writes, I... I, 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 I did this, I did that, I did the other. Augustus's self-penned obituary was all about him. Here in 2 Samuel 22, we have something very different. The king of Israel, too, he gives us a summary of his reign, but unlike Augustus, at the heart of his message isn't a, a very big ego, but a very big God. Now, we don't know exactly when David wrote this psalm or when he sung it. If you look at uh, chapter 22, verse 1, you'll see that we're, we're told it was after his enemies were defeated. Uh, but whenever it was written or sung, the writer of 1 and 2 Samuel has put it here at the end of his reign to help us make sense of everything we've seen so far. And it's a song that rejoices in God and gives all the glory to him. It starts with this incredible opening salvo where David hits us again and again with imagery all about how God has been his protection and his deliverer. It says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior, 
He says, you save me from violence. And he's not kind of speaking in exaggerated terms here, is he? Think of all the danger that we've seen David in throughout his life. Uh, Fighting off lions and bears as a shepherd boy. uh, Facing off with a fearsome giant. Fleeing for his life from the murderous King Saul. Forced off the throne by his own son, Absalom. And yet, through all that danger, through all that violence, David has survived. His enemies may have scored points along the way, but David is the one left standing. Is that because of David's strength as a warrior or his keen strategic mind? Well, no. David gives all the credit to the Lord. It's the Lord who has saved David over and over and over again. And in verses 5 to 20, uh, we're given this awesome picture of the Lord at work to rescue. Uh, David presents himself as being overwhelmed by death, like a, like a drowning man caught up in the waves, or trapped by death like an animal in a cage. He cries out to the Lord, and the Lord comes to the rescue. And what an image of God this is. Smoking nostrils, devouring fire, riding on storm clouds, a voice like thunder, chucking arrows about like lightning. A mighty warrior God fighting for his king and utterly defeating all his enemies. Now, you might be thinking, well, I don't remember that chapter of 1 and 2 Samuel. Maybe I missed a good week. Of course, this is a, a song. It's picture language. But what it pictures is no less real because of that. All throughout the book, hidden from human sight, the almighty God has been at work to rescue his king time and time again. And as amazing as those verses are, it's not even the whole story. So far, it might sound like God is kind of like David's divine insurance policy. David gets on with his plans And God bails him out when he gets into trouble. But David sings of a much bigger God than that. One who is the source of all his strength. The one who has been behind all his victories. We have to skip through some really good stuff. Come with me to chapter 22, verse 38. David says, I pursued my enemies and destroyed them, and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them, I thrust them through so that they did not rise, they fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. Who has rescued David? It's the Lord. Who has defeated David's enemies? It's the Lord. David can't take any of the credit for himself. And so he sings this song of praise to God, who has given him all his success. Look at verse 50. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Who has brought David from obscure shepherd boy to mighty king? Who is the hero of David's story? Not David, it's the Lord. Before we move on, there are, there are some verses, aren't there, that we, we bump on 
in the middle of this song. I'm thinking particularly of verses 21 to 24. Did those give you pause for thought as we read them earlier? Uh, David appears to be claiming that the reason for all his victories is because of his, his righteousness, his moral purity. In verse 21, he says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. And he makes even bolder statements as that in the next few verses. And there are are two reasons, I think, that that's jarring for us. Uh, One is, if we know our theology, we have the words of the Apostle Paul maybe ringing in our ears. Uh, We know that appealing to God on the basis of our works is useless because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Maybe more to the point, uh, we know what a sinner David is. In fact, for over 10 chapters now, the second half of 2 Samuel, we've been shown in stark detail the horror of David's sin and its disastrous results. So how can we make sense of verses like these? Is this a a whitewash? Is David deluded? Here are three things that have helped me to think this through uh, this week. The first thing is to remember that David is speaking poetically. Uh, Remember, this is a a psalm, it's a song, uh, rather than a a legal argument like Paul makes in Romans. So when David speaks of his, his righteousness and his purity here, he isn't contradicting what Paul would later write. And in fact, we know it's it's not contradictory because Paul knew his psalms. And in fact, when Paul writes in Romans 4 that no one is righteous, no, not one, where's he quoting from? He's quoting from Psalm 14, written by, you guessed it, David. Paul and David are not in disagreement here. Secondly, and maybe more positively, it gives us an insight into God's forgiveness. Do you remember what promise God made through his prophet Nathan after David had repented of his truly awful sin. Nathan said, the Lord also has put away your sin. And in this psalm, we see just how far God's forgiveness of sin goes. David can make these claims that sound outrageous about his blamelessness because God has totally forgiven and put away his sin for good. And that's very good news if you're a sinner and if you're trusting in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. Wouldn't it be amazing to stand in the the presence of God, confident of your absolute purity in his eyes? Not even a hint of sin or shame to speak of. If you're a Christian, that's gonna happen one day. That day is coming. And maybe David's prayer helps us to see that here. Thirdly, and finally, these words point us forward to the one to come, one greater than David, who would sing them without a hint of inconsistency, no caveats needed. The Lord Jesus truly kept the ways of the Lord. He never departed from God, even when it led him to an agonizing death on the cross. He was truly blameless, totally guilt-free in God's eyes. And he is the reason that there's great hope for God's people. He's the reason that we can hope beyond David's reign. 
As David's song finishes, his words point us to the future hope. Verse 51, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. It's a reminder of the the great covenant, the great agreement that God made with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, that, that after David's death, God would raise up someone even greater, that one of David's descendants would would reign over an even greater, everlasting throne. David's race was run, but the plans of God Almighty are still in motion. The best really was yet to come. And that's where David's final words leave us, not with bitterness or regret or worry about the future, but pointing us forward to hope in the king we need. The king we need, chapter 23, verse 1 to 7. Books of Samuel have shown us that the king God's people need sometimes is like David and sometimes is totally different to David. Sometimes David has shown us uh, the king we need by showing us a, an image of a true king to come. Sometimes he's shown us about how great that king will be by falling short of that reality. One and two Samuel have been telling us time and time again that the king we need is God's king. But for a culture that's, well, at best, skeptical of authority, maybe the idea that we, we need a leader at all kind of falls a little bit flat. Maybe we'd prefer to to live without a leader at all if we could. Thank you very much. David's last words help us to break free from that thinking and see just how good it is to live under God's king. Chapter 23, verse 3, David says, The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, Ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Life under the leader that God has chosen, life under the leader who leads God's people God's way, where it isn't a burden or a bore, it's an incredible blessing. Now, because of the weather at the moment, It might be hard to remember the last time you threw open the curtains in the morning to be greeted by a beautiful blue sky. Uh, Maybe you can't remember the last time you were able to go for a walk on a warm, sunny morning. But for a moment, try to remember just how good that feels. Maybe you have to remember a holiday. Beautiful blue skies and the warmth of the sun on your face. Isn't it lovely? Wouldn't you love to be there? Uh, Maybe you're not someone who's such a fan of the sun, but you love the smell of the rain on grass that has been desperate for a downpour for months. Breathe it in. (sighs) Well, those wonderful moments in creation are just a tiny, tiny, tiny hint of how beautiful and blessed it is to live under the rule and reign of God's king. 
And, and standing all these thousands of years later, we have the privilege of knowing that king who was promised, the Lord Jesus, born in David's line, the king who died and rose from death, who reigns from heaven's throne and his co- who is coming soon to rescue his people. He's the king who invites all to, to turn and follow him. And whoever bows the knee to King Jesus, no matter who they are or what they've done, will be welcomed into his kingdom to enjoy the blessings of his reign forever. Now, for now, we experience life under this king's reign only in part. But we look forward to the day when his kingdom comes in in all its fullness, when we live under the cloudless sky of his reign forever. If you belong to the Lord Jesus, your best days really are ahead of you. And that would be a wonderful place to stop. But there's another side to the coin which David tells us about in verses 6 and 7. This glorious future is only for those who bow to King Jesus now. Those who refuse to bow the knee Those who reject the king are headed for a completely different destiny. Like thorns at the bottom of the garden, all those who oppose God and stand against his king are headed for destruction. And so, as we come to the end of this long book, we're posed a question. Where do you stand with the king? Are you bowing the knee to him and aiming to live a life of loving obedience every day? Or are you opposing him, refusing to follow him, rejecting his ways? One day, heaven will resound with these words. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. For some, it will be the fulfillment of all our hopes. For others, It will be the announcement of our greatest dread. Which will it be for you?